I have had the privilege of filling four missions for this church, and that has provided me an opportunity to compare the teachings of this church as we have received them through the restoration of the gospel through the prophet Joseph Smith with the teachings of many other churches. My, how grateful I am to be a member of this church. Now, just to mention one or two, just think what we got from the visit of the father and the son to the prophet Joseph, a realization that the father and the son are two separate individuals and that they are real personages like Jesus was when he came forth from the tomb. There wasn't a church in the world that believed in that at the time the prophet Joseph received that wonderful vision. Then we learn that marriage can be eternal, that that's the plan of the Lord. And how grateful I am for that principle because it gives me the assurance that someday I'll be reunited with that sweet companion of mine who has already preceded me into the eternal worlds. And as I have said before, I would just as soon believe that death was a complete annihilation of both body and spirit as to think that I had to live on throughout the eternities that are to come without a continuation of the love ties that bind me and my wife together with the wonderful family that the Lord has given to us. One of the other great truths that we learned through the Restoration, just to briefly mention, is the fact that infants should not be baptized. That's a mistake of men. That isn't to be found anywhere in the Lord's teachings. But Jesus took little children in his arms and blessed them. And when I've discussed some of our beautiful philosophies with others of other churches, many of them would say, well, we could accept your teachings, but we can't believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And I've thought a lot about that, and I suppose it'd be almost impossible to believe that God was not even enough to choose a 14-year-old boy to usher in the dispensation of the fullness of times, as Paul said, in which dispensation he would bring together in one in Christ all that which is in heaven above and that which is upon the earth beneath. And that opens the door for the consideration of another beautiful principle, and that's the principle of the pre-existence of spirits, that we are literally the children of God, the eternal Father, that we lived with him before we came here upon this earth. The apostle Paul said, The Lord hath before appointed the bounds of the habitations of all men for to live upon the face of the earth. He said, We have had the fathers of our flesh who corrected us, and we yielded them 
uh, obedience. Should we not much more be in obedient to the Father of Spirits that we might live? I like the thought that he's my Father. When Jesus prayed, he didn't pray my Father, which art in heaven. He prayed our Father, which art in heaven. And that's a wonderful thing. That's why our primary children sing, I am a child of God. The Lord has his own way of calling prophets, and he knew them before they were ever born here in mortality. We read in the book of Abraham that the Lord stood in the midst of the spirits, and he said there were many noble and great ones, and they couldn't be noble and great if they hadn't done something to make them noble and great. And the Lord said, These I will make my rulers. And Abraham, thou wast one of them. Thou wast chosen before thou wast born. Isn't that a beautiful thought? And the Lord stood in the midst of those spirits, and there were others there who became his prophets here in mortality. As we read about Jeremiah, when he was called to be a prophet, he couldn't understand it. And the Lord said, Before thou wast born, I knew thee. Before thou wast conceived in thy mother's womb, I ordained thee to be a prophet unto the nations. And he couldn't have ordained him if he didn't exist. And he wouldn't have ordained him before he was born if he hadn't have done something in that spiritual life to prepare him <coughs> to become <coughs> one of the Lord's uh, mouthpieces here upon this earth. The same thing is true with the prophet Joseph. I'll come back to that. We read that there was war in heaven, that Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the, the dragon or Satan was cast down to the earth, and the cry went out, Woe to them that dwell upon the earth, for Satan is cast down, and he goeth about seeking whom he can destroy. And that's what he has been doing. When the spirits were cast out of, oh, and he drew a third, <coughs> a third of the host of heaven with him. And when they were cast out, that third of the host of heaven brought with them the knowledge that they had in the spirit world, while our knowledge was temporarily taken from us through our birth into mortality. The Apostle Paul said, Now we see in part, we know in part, we see through a glass darkly, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away, and we shall see as we are seen, and know as we are known. To me, that will be a complete restoration of all that we knew before we came here into mortality, what our lives were in the spirit world. Now, because Satan uh, brought with him the, uh, the best illustration we have about how we lose our knowledge was the life of the Savior. We read in the first chapter of St. John that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and by the Word 
was all things created that created are. And not one thing was created except by the word of God. And the word was the life and the light of the world, the light of every man coming into the world. And then it goes on, and the word has become flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as that of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. While Jesus created everything according to the scripture, nevertheless, when he was born into mortality, he had to learn to walk and talk as other children at the age of 12. We find him reasoning with the wise men in the temple, and later on, he said, I do nothing save that which I have seen my father do. Now because Satan brought with him the knowledge that he had in the spirit world, he knew who he fought against in that war in heaven, and he has tried to put to death the prophets of God. That's why Jesus, standing on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem, said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets and killest them that are sent unto thee, how oft would I have gathered thee together as a chicken gather her, as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wing, and you would not. Therefore is your house left desolate unto you, and you shall not see me again until you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Today we are coming because we have been sent in the name of the Lord. Like Paul said, faith comes by hearing the word of God. And how shall they hear except it be preached unto them? And how shall they preach except they be sent? And we have been sent. Now I want to just come back to illustrate what I'm trying to tell you. When Moses was born, the devil put it into the heart of uh, Pharaoh to have all the male children in Israel put to death. Thousands had been born before that time, but Satan knew that he would have to reckon with uh, Moses. And you remember how Moses' mother saved his life by making a basket of bulrushes and putting him in the river, and how the Pharaoh's uh, daughter took him out and cared for him. When Jesus was born, Satan put it into the heart of Herod to have all the children in Bethlehem and surrounding territory put to death under two years of age. There had been thousands born before that time, but Satan knew he'd have to reckon with the Savior. He was in that war that was fought in heaven when Satan and a third were cast out. When Joseph Smith went in the woods to pray, only 14 years of age, a power of darkness rested upon him till he felt like it would crush the very life out of his body. But through his prayer, finally, a pillar of light descended and he was released from the power of Satan. Satan knew that he would have to reckon with that man, Joseph Smith, because he was one of those noble and great ones that God said he would make his rulers. 
We read in the, uh, the Book of Mormon that when Lehi was in the desert, he told his son Joseph that the Lord had promised Joseph, who was sold into Egypt, that in the latter days he would raise up a prophet from his loins like unto Moses. And we're told in Holy Writ that there was no prophet in Israel like unto Moses because he walked and talked with God. That's the kind of a prophet the Lord promised Joseph 3,000 years before Joseph was born, Joseph Smith. He said his name shall be Joseph and his father's name shall be Joseph. And he said, he shall bring forth my word. The prophet Joseph Smith brought us the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, many other writings. He has given us more revealed truth than any prophet who has ever lived upon the face of the earth as far as our records show. And he said, he shall not only bring forth my word, but he shall bring men to conviction of my word that has already gone forth among them. What do you mean by that? That in the midst of these hundreds of churches that are by men, men's interpretation of the scriptures, and because they can't agree, the churches keep multiplying, that the Lord would give to this new prophet the ability to comprehend the scriptures that had already been sent forth among them. And then he adds, and he shall bring men unto salvation. Why? Because he would receive the holy priesthood, the power to administer the saving ordinances of the gospel. And then he adds, and he shall be great in mine eyes. Whatever the world may think of the prophet Joseph Smith, there's the statement of the Lord that he would be great in his eye. Now I'd like to give you a little experience in the mission field of what I think the Lord meant when he said he shall not only bring forth my word, but shall bring men to conviction of my word that has already gone forth among them. When I was in Holland, I was invited to talk to a Bible class of businessmen. We met in the home of a prominent furniture dealer. Uh, there were about 20 men. Each had his Bible. The only woman was the daughter of the man of the house. And uh, they gave me an hour and a half to discuss, discuss universal salvation, which is our work for the dead, preaching in the spirit world, baptism, living for the dead. I just gave them chapter and verse. And when I was through, I closed my Bible and waited for a comment. The first comment came from the daughter of the man of the house. She said, Father, I just can't understand it. I've never attended one of these Bible classes in my life that you haven't had the last word to say on everything. And tonight, you haven't said a word. <laughs> a man shook his head. He said, my daughter, there isn't anything to say. This man has been teaching us things we've never heard of and been teaching them to us out of our own Bibles. I can tell you many more like that. God bless you and thank God for the restoration of the gospel to the prophet Joseph Smith. I leave you my testimony in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
my dear brethren, I greet you as you are assembled here in the Salt Lake Tabernacle in hundreds of other meeting places around the world. We're so pleased with the able leadership provided by the priesthood bearers of the church at all levels. As we magnify our priesthood callings, I hope we will always remember that the church is the support to the family. The church does not and must not seek to displace the family, but is organized to help create and nurture righteous families in, as well as righteous individuals. In this connection, brethren, we hope you will be mindful of your needs and numerous and to preserve some of the, that precious time for your own wives and families. Be mindful, too, of your associates in the work of the church so that time is not taken unnecessarily from them that they are, that their families avoid the tendencies to crowd too much meetings, too many meetings in on the Sabbath day. When holding your regular meetings, make them as spiritual and effective as is possible. Meeting the needs be Meetings need not be hurried nor rushed, for they can be planned in a manner that permits the other sacred purposes to be accomplished without difficulty. The consolidated meeting schedule was implemented by largely in order to avoid several more Sabbath hours for the families. Therefore, take time to be together as families to converse with one another, to study the scriptures, to visit friends, relatives, and the sick and the lonely. <clears throat> this is also an excellent time to work on your journals and your genealogy. Do not neglect these things as you do not now have the blessings of the living in the traditional families. These are special souls who often have special needs. Do not let them become isolated from you or the activities of your ward or your branch. My dear brethren, especially those of you who persuade preside over stakes and wards or branches, I should like to re reiterate a plea I made to you in the October priesthood meeting. Please take a particular interest in strengthening and improving the quality of the teaching in the church. The saving large, the saving 
the Savior charged us with feeling his, feeding his sheep. I fear it sometimes that all too often many of our members come to church, sit through a class or a meeting, and then they return home having been largely uninformed. It is especially unfortunate if these happen at a time when they may be entering a period of stress, temptation, or personal or family crisis. We all need to be touched and nurtured by the Spirit, and effective teaching is one of the most important ways this can happen. We regularly do vigorous enlistment and reactivity. It works to get members to come to church, but often do not watch over what they receive when they do attend. Brethren, as you may be remember while speaking this morning, I referred to our recent visit to a Caribbean island and the wonderful missionary work that was being, being done there by some of the brethren who are associated with the 70s in the church. The years since we opened up those islands for the preaching of the gospel, one incident occurred at Santo Domingo that I did not have time to tell you about. I think I should like to relate it to you now. We held a lively, a lively general meeting in Santo Domingo, the capital city of the Dominican Republic. Nearly 1,600 souls were there, which was new, of course, and we did not realize that there were so many that were joining the church down there. About an hour after the close of the general meeting, a busload of 100 from the Puerto Plata branch arrived at the meeting place. They had been delayed because of their car broke down. Under ordinary circumstances, they could have made the trip in about four hours, but they finally arrived after 10 p.m. to find the hall dark, the building empty. Many kept, wept because they were so disappointed. All were converts, some of them few months and others only weeks and days. Sister Kimball and I had gone to bed. After a long and tiring day, upon learning of the plight of these faithful souls, my secretary knocked on the door of our hotel room and, worked and woke us up. He apologized as for disturbing us, but uh, thought that I would want to know about the matter. The arrivals had permitted, dic dictated a personal message to them. However, I felt that that wouldn't be good enough, 
and not fair to those who had come so far under such trying circumstances. To 100 people jammed into this bus which broke down and could not continue its journey. I got out of bed and dressed and went downstairs to see the members who had made such an effort only to be disappointed because of engine trouble. The saints were still weeping as we entered the hall, so I spent more than an hour visiting with them. They then seemed relieved and satisfied and got back on the bus and for the long ride home. They had to get back by morning to go on their work and uh, to school. Those good people seemed so appreciative of a brief visit together that I just felt we couldn't let them down. As I returned to my bed, I did so with a sense of peace and contentment in my soul. Brethren, we all have opportunities to render service to others. That is our calling and our privilege in serving the need of others. We are mindful of the words of the Savior. Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto me, done one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Brethren, may we counsel you on another matter close to us. As we see contributions from our saints for either and for tithes and fast offerings, let us speak more often than we sometimes do in terms of blessings which will flow to us as we keep the commandments and do our duty. From time to time we hear reports of unwarranted pressures which accompany the financial requests made of our church members. This is a matter of grave importance. In these days of the of inflation and emotional and political unrest, our people everywhere are being met with difficult and trying experiences on every hand. Prudence and wisdom not only suggest but dictate that we take some steps to strengthen and husband our resources. We must not overburden our people. With this in mind, the First Presidency has prepared a letter which was released yesterday in which it was set out the concerns of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve to the relative high increases in financial requirements burdens on the members of the church. In, a baller, in addition to their payment of tithing and fast offerings, with our letter we prepared some guidelines to assist Ward 
stake and mission leaders in complying with the counsel and direction given. We have instructed the regional representatives of the Twelve to give this matter immediate attention and uh, implementation. Let us as individuals, as families, and as, and as wards and stakes learn to live without our mean, within our means. There is strength and uh, salvation in this principle. Someone has said that we are much in proportion, we are rich in proportion to that with which we can get along without. As families and as a church, we can and should provide that which is truly essential for our people, but we must be careful not to extend beyond that which is essential or for purposes which are not directly related to our families. Welfare and a basic mission of the church. I love you, my brethren, you young men and you older men, and I am grateful for your faith and your devotion to the cause of righteousness, the cause of the Master. I express my affection for you and leave my blessing with you, and I pray our Heavenly Father to bless you and your families, your homes, and your work. God bless you. Peace be with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We considered the oath and covenant which belongeth to the priesthood. Tonight I have in mind calling attention to some specific gospel covenants which every priesthood bearer should honor. In saying to William McClellan, Blessed are you for receiving mine everlasting covenant, even the fullness of the gospel, the Lord identified the gospel as the great and all-embracing covenant. As a matter of fact, he had himself presented it as such, the Lord had presented it as such to us, his spirit children, in the great pre-earth council in heaven. Standing among us at that time, in that pre-mortal assembly, the Lord said unto those who were with him, We will go down and make an earth whereon these made well, and we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. And they who keep their first estate shall be added upon, and they who keep not 
their first estate shall not have glory in the same kingdom with those who keep their first estate. And they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. In that council, a third of the spirits rejected the gospel covenant. All who obtain the promised reward that they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever must accept and comply with gospel covenants. With Abraham, the Lord said, or with Abraham, the Lord entered into a special covenant when he said, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee above measure. I will bless and make thy <coughs> name great among all nations, and thou shalt be a blessing unto thy seed after thee, that in their hands they shall bear the ministry of and priesthood unto all nations. And I will bless them th through thy name, for as, for as many as receive this gospel shall be called after thy name and shall be accounted thy seed, and shall rise up and bless thee as their father. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them And they and curse them who curse thee, and in thee and thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed, even with the blessings of the gospel, which are blessings of salvation and of life eternal. Abraham's posterity through Isaac and Jacob with whom these covenants were renewed, have ever since been known as, though, as those who have understood, by those who have understood the gospel, as children of the covenant. The first gospel covenant we mortals enter into with the Lord is the baptismal covenant. Alma thus set forth the nature of this covenant when he and others who believe, who believe the teachings of Abinadi fled into the wilderness to the place called Mormon. There he, Alma, said unto them, Behold, here are the waters of Mormon, and now as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God and to be called his people and are willing to bear one another's burdens and are willing to mourn 
with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort and to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places even until death that ye may be re redeemed of God that ye may have eternal life what have you against being baptized in the name of the Lord as a witness before him that ye have entered into a covenant with him that ye will serve him and keep his commandments that he may pour out his spirit more abundantly upon you. In this dispensation, the Lord has stated for us the terms of the baptismal covenant in the Doctrine and Covenants as follows. And again, by way of commandment to the children, to the church concerning the manner of baptism, all those who humble themselves before God and desire to be baptized and come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits and witness before the church that they have truly repented of their sins and are willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ, having a determination to serve him to the end and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the Spirit of Christ and to the remission of their sins, shall be received by baptism into his church. Another instruction the Lord has given us is that thou mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world, thou shalt go to the house of prayer and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. The sacrament prayers dictated by the Lord himself should keep us constantly re reminded of gos the gospel covenants we have entered into with the Lord. These prayers are much alike. The one on the bread reads, O God, the Eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who receive, who partake of it, that they may eat in remembrance of the body of thy Son and witness unto thee, O God, the Eternal Father, that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy Son and always remember him and keep his commandments which he has given them that they may always have his spirit to be with them. Amen. Many of the Lord's commandments are in the form of covenants, promising specific blessings, tithing, for example. Behold, now it is called today until the coming of the Son of Man, and verily it is a day of sacrifice. 
and a day for the tithing of my people. For he that is tithed shall not be burned at his coming. And I say unto you, if my people observe not this law of tithing to keep it holy, and by this law sanctify the land of Zion unto me, it shall not be a land of Zion unto you. These statements make it clear that by failing to honor the tithing covenant, one forfeits great blessings. On the other hand, complying with it assures great blessings. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sake, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall you, your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. Another example of a covenant is the word of wisdom, which also promises a specific blessing. Behold, verily, thus saith the Lord unto you, in consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the heart of conspiring men in the last days, I have warned you and forewarned you by giving unto you this word of wisdom by re revelation that inasmuch as man drinketh wine or strong drinks among you, behold, it is not good, neither meat in the sight of your father. And again, strong drinks are not for the belly, but for the washing of your bodies. And again, tobacco is not for the body, neither for the belly, and is not good for man, but is an herb for bruises and all sick cattle to be used with judgment and skill. And again, hot drinks are not for the body or belly, and all saints who remember to keep and do these sayings, walking in obedience to the commandments, shall receive health in their navel and marrow in their bone, to their bones and shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures, and shall run and not be weary, and shall walk and not faint. And I, the Lord, give unto them a promise that the destroying angel shall pass by them as the children of Israel and not slay them. You will remember that it was necessary for the destroying angel referred to in this scripture to fatally afflict the firstborn of men and beasts throughout Egypt 
in order to persuade Pharaoh to let Israel go. Destroying angels are mentioned several times in the modern scriptures. Two years before the word of wisdom promise was given, the Lord said that the angels were waiting the great command to reap down the earth, to gather the tares, that they may be burned. Observing the gospel covenants we have made with the Lord qualifies us to enter the temple and there receive the ordinances and covenants essential to exaltation, including the new and everlasting covenant of celestial marriage, that the Lord will help all of us to magnify our callings in the priesthood by proving faithful to every covenant and commandment and obligation which rest upon us, the holders of the holy priesthood, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As I address this vast body of priesthood brethren tonight, I do so in humility and with a prayer in my heart. The two subjects I will discuss come by assignment. The introduction to my first subject is recorded in the Old Testament as spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that, and that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. Four wonderful blessings are promised by the Lord to those who obey the law of the fast. Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy re reward. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. And if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and the darkness be as the noonday. And the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones. And thou shalt be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. Regarding this scripture, President Harold B. Lee had this to say. The tremendous blessings that come from fasting have been spelled out in every dispensation. If you analyze the 58th chapter of the book of Isaiah you will find unraveled why the Lord wants us to pay fast offerings, why He wants us to fast. It is because by qualifying thus we can call and the Lord can answer. We can cry and the Lord will say, Here I am. Do we ever want to be in a condition where we can call and He won't answer? We will cry in our distress and He won't be with us? I think it is time we are thinking about these fundamentals, President Lee says, because these are the days that lie ahead, 
when we are going to need more and more the blessings of the Lord, when the judgments are poured out without mixture upon the whole earth. End quote. President J. Reuben Clark, Jr. Had, had this to say, The fundamental principle of all church relief work is that it must be carried on by fast offering and other voluntary donations and contributions. This is the order established by the Lord. Tithing is not primarily designed for that purpose and must not be used except in the last extremity. End quote. Fast offering is the Lord's financial law given for the blessing of the poor. For many years it was understood that fast offerings should represent the cost of two meals not eaten. This understanding came into being because in the early days members were generally asked to give the actual food saved by fasting. Conditions were so desperate that money would have been of little use. Later the understanding seemed to be that one dollar per capita would be adequate. However, in recent years, President Kimball has said of the fast, a fast offering, quote, I think we should be very generous and give instead of the amount we save by our two meals of fasting, perhaps much, much more, ten times more where we are in a position to do so, end quote. It is important to recognize that the fast offering is a free will offering, the amount of which each individual is responsible to determine. It is not the same as tithing, which is 10% of our interest annually. The amount is left up to each individual, and yet a living prophet has said we should be very generous. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our faithfulness would generate fast offering funds sufficient to operate the entire storehouse system? Perhaps the following scriptures will give us some guidance as to how generous we should be. First, from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 42, beginning with verse 30. This is a revelation given to the prophet Joseph Smith regarding the law of consecration. And behold, thou wilt remember the poor and consecrate of thy properties for their support, that which, that which thou hast imparted to them, with a covenant and a deed which cannot be broken. And inasmuch as ye impart your substance unto the poor, Ye will do it unto me, and they shall be laid before the bishop of my church and his counselors. Therefore the residue shall be kept in my storehouse to administer to the poor and the needy. The Lord restates this principle many times, including section 70 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 7. Nevertheless, inasmuch as they receive more than is needful for their necessities and their wants, it shall be given unto my storehouse. Further, you will recall, when a certain ruler asked Jesus what he should do to inherit eternal life, the Savior responded, Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these things have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. 
Again from the Doctrine and Covenants we learn, For it is expedient that I, the Lord, should make every man accountable as a steward over earthly blessings, which I have made and prepared for my creatures. I, the Lord, stretched out the heavens and built the earth. My very handiwork and all things therein are mine. But it must needs be done in mine own way. And behold, this is the way that I, the Lord, have decreed to provide for my saints, that the poor shall be exalted in that the rich are made low. For the earth is full and there is enough to spare. Yea, I prepared all things and have given unto the children of men to be agents unto themselves. Therefore, if any man shall take of the abundance which I have made and impart not his portion, according to the law of my gospel, and to the poor and the needy, he shall with the wicked lift up his eyes in hell, being in torment. May I conclude my remarks on fast offering with portions of a letter I received several years ago from Elder John H. Groberg, who at that time was president of the Tongan Mission. Quote, Enclosed find a check for $1,000 for excess fast offerings from the Tongan Mission. Normally, this letter would end here, but because of an experience I recently had, I would like to add a little more. As you may or may not be aware, Tonga is one of the poorest countries financially in the world. The average wage rate is only around 12 cents per hour, if you're lucky enough to have a job. Recently, while visiting one of the far distant islands that is very difficult to get to, I went late in the day to the home of one of the good widow sisters there. When I first approached her hut, the sun was still quite bright, and I could not help but notice the stark poverty of her surroundings. It had been raining earlier. The mud and decay and the ever-present smell of drying fish was at first repulsive, but the warmth of greeting with a fellow church member, especially after years of separation, together with tears of appreciation for the long-awaited visit, soon pushed the unpleasantness of the surroundings temporarily into the background. As we conversed in her fluid native tongue and she told of her love for and faith in the Church and of all the blessings she had received, I could not help but think about her apparently miserable circumstances. All sorts of ideas went through my mind, and I must have let my thoughts wander as I suddenly became aware that somewhere between phrases about blessings and poverty and service, she had gone to her hut and was now returning with a small knotted rag. Suddenly my mind seemed to fill with light, and the words fast offering flooded in. I was so excited with the idea that had come so suddenly and so clearly that you can imagine my utter amazement and unpreparedness when she took a threepence, a coin worth about three cents from her rag, and said softly, Here is my fast offering to help the poor. I wanted to explain that fast offering was to help her, not for her to help others. The explanation never came, for as I looked through misty eyes, first at the threepence, then back at the good sister, the whole scene changed. The hut was a glowing mansion, and the mud was gold. The world seemed to stand still for a moment. All of nature seemed to stop and listen, as from the heavens the whole universe seemed filled with the reassuring words, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As the setting sun singled the end of the day, so it also told of the approaching end of her beautiful life of service. 
I took the three pence, and as I write this check, the whole experience once again fills my mind. And I wonder how many three pences to make a thousand dollars. May I encourage all bishops present tonight to remember this wonderful Tongan widow as you teach the law of the fast and as you bless the poor by wisely and judiciously expending these sacred funds. In the sweet glow of this experience, let me talk now with you about stake and ward budgets. We are very concerned about the financial stress under which many of our people are laboring. Bishops particularly have the responsibility not to let programs become too expensive and thereby become a financial burden to the members. It is all too easy for leaders to assume that others have discretionary income similar to their own. May I illustrate what I am talking about by quoting portions of a letter recently received from a concerned mother. Quote, In September it was making and selling pizzas three nights a week and Saturday mornings to raise money for volleyball uniforms. There were class parties, new beginnings, leadership workshops, and ward service projects. In October and November it was volleyball practice and games three nights a week, a ward dinner, a Halloween party, and a steak midweek fireside and a barn dance. In January there have been basketball practices and games to start the sports program going again, a steak standards night and a fundraising project. In February, along with the basketball games, there have been roadshow rehearsals three days of the week, a skiing party, a snow party, a state camp meeting, and a workshop to finish up the Susquehannock project to take up at least 22 days this month. I'm sure I need not go on and on with this word picture, but still there is more you should know about. Coming up is a slave auction, a car wash, a donut sale, a singing telegram project lawn raking every Saturday morning till summer to raise money for a super activity in Idaho. There's an ironic priesthood outing for both the boys and the girls in May, two scout overnights besides Beehive Camp and Scout Camp." We are sufficiently concerned that Elder Gordon B. Hinckley addressed this subject last evening in a special joint meeting with the regional representatives and stake presidents. May I quote just a sentence or two from his remarks? Quote, I should like to say that sacrifice, where needed, is an important aspect of the gospel. It is of the very essence of, the, of true worship. But unnecessary sacrifice that is requested because of extravagance or poor management is evil. End quote. You bishops should expect that your stake president will meet with you almost immediately upon returning from conference to evaluate both stake and ward budgets. The stake budget, of course, has an important impact on the ward budget. There are some very specific areas which you should carefully evaluate. One, energy costs. Lights should be turned off when rooms are not in use. Air conditioning and heating should not be used unless absolutely necessary, and particularly when the building or portions thereof are not in use. Paid custodial services. Such services should be reviewed with an eye to using ward members on a rotation basis to take care of the grounds and the basic cleaning. Thus, professional custodial hours could be reduced and their efforts concentrated on maintaining mechanical and other complex systems. On this particular item, written suggestions will be forthcoming very soon. Welfare projects. Each project, through efficient management, should contribute to the commodity production budget to the maximum degree so as to reduce the need for cash contributions from the individual ward members to meet this commitment. Four activities. 
Current policy is that the yearly budget include all ward and stake activity funding and that there not be any fundraising going on in addition to the budget. Youth conferences or activities that require expensive uh, and extensive travel should be eliminated. These are, but a few, these are but a few of the reducing the ways of reducing financial burdens to the people. Clearly, we are preparing for the day when the higher law, that of consecration, will again become the financial law of the Church throughout which we will properly take care of the poor. Until that time, it is our responsibility and blessing, as a matter of fact, our covenant, to give generously from our surplus to bless the poor. We stress the teaching of personal and family preparedness as the first principle of the Welfare Services Program. It is therefore incumbent upon each stake president and bishop to make sure that excessive financial demands are not made upon the people which will weaken their financial security and make it impossible for them to take care of their own needs. May the Lord bless us to be wise and sound stewards in blessing the people with our teachings and our leadership. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank the Lord for inspiring music. When the Lord declared in modern revelation that power is not given unto Satan to tempt little children, he revealed that this, this period of childhood was given to children so that great things may be required at the hand of their fathers that great things may be required at the hands of their fathers. What confidence the Lord has in fathers, and what a responsibility he has placed on fathers. Great things are required of fathers today. When I think of fathers, I think of Adam, progenitor of us all, Father Abraham, Jacob or Israel, Lehi, Joseph Smith, Sr., Joseph F. Smith. I revere these noble men, not just because they were great prophets, but because they were great fathers who realized what the Lord required of them, and they lived up to that expectation. I wish to speak on this subject to you fathers about three particular things that the Lord requires of us. If we will do them, our homes will be blessed with peace, our names will be proudly borne by our descendants, and our association with our family will be eternal. First, provide a home where love and the Spirit of the Lord may abide. Children are born innocent, not evil. They are not sent to earth, however, to neutral environments. They are sent to homes that, for good or evil, influence their ideas, their emotions, their thoughts, and standards by which future choices will be made. One great thing the Lord requires of each of us is to provide a home where a happy, positive influence for good exists. In future years, the costliness of home furnishings or the number of bathrooms will not matter much. 
What will matter significantly is whether our children felt love and acceptance in the home. It will greatly matter whether there was happiness and laughter or bickering and contention. I am convinced that before a child can be influenced for good by his or her parents, there must be a demonstration of respect and love. President Joseph F. Smith said, Fathers, if you wish your children to be taught in the principles of the gospel, if you wish them to be obedient to and united with you, love them, and prove to them that you do love them by every good act to them. For your own sake, for the love that should exist between you and your boys, however wayward they may be, when you speak or talk to them, do so not in anger, do it not harshly, in a condemning spirit, speak to them kindly, get down and weep with them, if necessary, and get them to shed tears with you, if possible. Soften their hearts. Get them to feel tenderly toward you. Use no lash and no violence. Approach them with reason, with persuasion, and love unfeigned. Many suggestions could be enumerated as to what we can and should do to make our homes places of refuge and happiness. Once you determine that a high priority in your life is to see that your wife and your children are happy, then you will do all in your power to bring it about. I'm not just speaking of satisfying material desires, but of filling other vital needs, such as appreciation, compliments, comforting, encouraging, listening, and giving love and affection. If with pleasure, you are viewing anything your child is doing. If you like him, if you love him, let him know. Don't withhold appreciation until others give expression. If he wins your commendation, tell him so. More than fame and more than money is the disposition sunny and some hearty warm approval makes him glad. So if you think some praise is due him, now's the time to give it to him. Tie him close with loving language from his dad. Your supreme opportunity in life is fatherhood. These words directed to fathers by President David O. McKay should be framed by every father. When one puts business or pleasure or the earning of an additional income above his home, he that moment starts on the downgrade to soul weakness. When the club becomes more attractive to any man than his home, it is time for him to confess in bitter shame that he has failed to measure up to the supreme opportunity of his life and flunked in the final test of true manhood. The poorest shack in which love prevails over a united family is far more, far greater, of far greater value to God and future humanity than any other riches. 
In such a home, God can work miracles and will work miracles. Pure hearts in a pure home are always in whispering distance of heaven. Fathers, what is the spirit in your homes? Second, teach your children to understand principles of truth. In a revelation to the prophet Joseph, the Lord directed fathers to bring up their children in light and truth. He rebuked several because of their failure to do so. Each of us would do well to review those principles given in section 93 to Joseph Smith, Jr., Frederick G. Williams, Sidney Rigdon, and Newell K. Whitney. In this revelation, the Lord states that Satan cometh and taketh away light and truth through disobedience from the children of men, and because of the tradition of their fathers. The tradition of their fathers likely refers, of course, to the bad example and teachings of some fathers. We must remember this world is a celestial environment. Our children grow up in this environment. They are constantly exposed to television programs and movie entertainment, which depict the most seamy and perverse side of life. They are barraged with slogans and advertising designed to induce them to practices that rob them of spirituality. Some fathers leave solely to mother or the school the responsibility of shaping a child's ideas and standards. Too often, television and movie screens shape our children's values. We should not assume that public schools always reinforce teachings given in the home concerning systems, false ideas about the theory of man's development from lower forms of life, teachings that there are no absolute moral values, repudiation of all beliefs regarding regarded as, spirit, as supernatural, permissiveness about sexual freedom that gives sanction to immoral behavior and alternative lifestyles such as lesbianism, homosexuality, and other perverse practices. Such teachings not only tend to underline the faith and the morals of our young people, but they deny the existence of God who gave absolute laws and the divinity of Jesus Christ. Surely we can see the moral contradiction of some who argue for the preservation of endangered species but sanction the abortion of unborn humans. There is a solution, and it is that the Lord expects great things from the fathers of Israel. Fathers must take time to find out what their children are being taught and then take steps to correct false information and teachings. I know fathers who inquire of their children each evening to determine firsthand what their children are being taught in school and what needs to be corrected. Then, if necessary, they instruct them in what the Lord has revealed. This is application of the principle that light and truth forsake that evil one. The new consolidated Sunday, Sunday meeting schedule 
has been implemented to give fathers more time on the Sabbath to teach their children. This is a golden opportunity for families to study the scriptures and receive instruction from their parents. Blessed is the household that does this on a consistent basis. What should we teach? The Lord has revealed the specific curriculum that parents should teach. Hear his words. Teach unto your children that all men everywhere must repent, or they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God, for no unclean thing can dwell there or dwell in his presence. As further noted in this revelation, the fundamental doctrines consist of the doctrine of the fall, the mission of Christ and his atonement, and the first principles and ordinances of the gospel, which include faith in Christ, repentance, baptism, for remission of sins, and the gift of the Holy Ghost as the means of a sanctified life. With few exceptions, righteous sons and daughters who have attained eternal blessings are not just physically begotten by their fathers. They are spiritually regenerated by the examples and teachings of their parents. Great fathers lead their children to Christ. Third, set in order your own household. Such was the Lord's counsel to fathers in the early church history, and such is his timely counsel to us today. Setting your home in order is keeping the commandments of God. This brings harmony and love in the home between you and your companion and between you and your children. It is daily family prayer. It is teaching your family to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is each family member keeping the commandments of God. It is you and your companion being worthy to receive a temple recommend, all family members receiving the ordinances of exaltation, and your family being sealed together for eternity. It is being free from excessive debt with family members paying honest tithes and offerings. Fathers, are your homes in order? In a revelation given to President John Taylor, the Lord directed this message to the priesthood, quote, I call upon the heads of families to put their houses in order according to the law of God and to purify themselves before me and to purge out iniquity from their households. And I will bless them and be with you, saith the Lord. And ye shall gather together in your holy places wherein ye assemble to call upon me, and ye shall ask for such things as are right, and I will hear your prayers, and my spirit and power shall be with you, and my blessing shall rest upon you, upon your families, your dwellings, your households, upon your flocks and herds and fields, and orchards and vineyards, and upon all, and and upon all that pertains unto you. Yes, these times require great things from fathers, and so does the Lord. Three requirements are 
create a home where love and the Spirit of the Lord may abide. Bring up children in light and truth and set your homes in order. The sacred title of Father is shared with the Almighty. In the church, men are called and released. Did you ever hear of a mortal father being released? As I travel throughout the church and see faithful families, I say thank God for the exemplary fathers and mothers. As I see faithful young people and am proud of their accomplishments, I say thank God for diligent fathers and mothers. Fatherhood is not a matter of station or wealth. It is a matter of desire, diligence, and determination to see one's family exalted in the celestial kingdom. If that prize is lost, nothing else really matters. I know of families who have as their goal that each member of the family and posterity will arrive in their heavenly home, the celestial kingdom, with no vacant chairs. That is their objective. They review it at every family reunion and mention it frequently as they mingle together between reunions. God bless all the fathers of Israel to do well the work within the walls of their own homes. With the Lord's help, we shall succeed in this our most important responsibility. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.